Blog Talk Radio. Gonna tell you a little bedtime tale, legend it will become. Burgers flying out the door, sail on. Two for one, no concern for the future. Living for today. Fast food bite on your way, lay it all to waste. The masses are afflicted now. Moo, mad cow, mad cow, mad cow, mad cow, line dance song. Hey, Sign Guy Nation, welcome to the show here on another Friday afternoon. Sign Guy and QT with you as usual. Real fast before we jump into things with the guests and show notes, if you're looking for some wrestling, Tonight, WCWO, as usual, in Indianapolis, Indiana, FSW in Las Vegas, Nevada, SGW in Hamilton, Ohio, PSW in Piedmont, Alabama, Chicago Style Wrestling in Franklin Park, Illinois, and KEPW in Frankfort, Kentucky. Tomorrow night, Paul Cade 2 for the Humane Society in Salem, Indiana. PPW in Bedford, Indiana, Supreme Pro Wrestling in Madison, Indiana, DCW in Salt Lake City, Utah, PWH in Jackson, Michigan, AIWF in Lumberton, North Carolina, GCW in Anaheim, California, APW in North College Hill, Ohio, RMG in Lake City, Tennessee, AWF in Phoenix, Arizona, NSPW in Hanksville, Alabama, PAPW in East Haven, Connecticut, RWE in Newport, Arkansas, EPW in Coldwater, Michigan, and NBW happening in Fulton, Missouri tomorrow. So there's lots of wrestling out there. Go find yourself a show and support your local independent. If you have one near you and you feel safe to do so. But without any further ado, I want to get our guest on here. Hugely excited to have him back with us. I've been anticipating it for weeks now. Gary Morgenstein, thank you so much for returning to the show. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me on, Jason. It's a pleasure. Now, the fans that remember your last appearance, uh, you were on with Craig Peters, and at that point we were talking about your book, A Mound Over Hell, which uh, was pretty close to coming out at that point. You released that book. It was a big success. And the follow-up to that, A Fastball for Freedom, has finally arrived. I have started in on it. I'm enjoying it immensely. What can you tell us about your book, A Fastball for Freedom? Well, it's book two um, in the trilogy, and it's set in 2098 after the United States and the West has lost um, World War III to the Islamic Empire. So imagine ISIS running most of the world, and America has failed democracy, has failed capitalism. There's a new entity called the family, which is kind of a benevolent um, dictatorship, and it's trying something different. It's forming a society based on ethics and honesty and love. And friendship. I mean, what a notion, huh? I mean, <laughs> you're not allowed to push people under the bus. Um, but it has its dark side. And as Mound Over Hell began, baseball, which was associated with treason, was facing its last season ever. And um, 
suddenly it's saved by Mickey Mantle and Ty Cobb coming back. And as book two, Baseball Enjoys the Renaissance, only to be short-lived. And in book two, we open it up so that um, you see the Islamic Empire as well as the United States. And both sides are the tyranny. The different kinds of tyranny are beginning to crack. And the question is, will there be World War Four, or will there be some way to find peace? Now, in the current book, the second of the trilogy, a lot of fans of wrestling will see a little bit of uh, similarities between some of these factions, uh, such as the Allahs and the family. A lot of times they look to be based in kind of wrestling situations where one guy is controlling the masses, kind of like a manager that would control his stable, going against the other manager's faction. There's a little bit of that wrestling element I was picking up. Was I imagining that, or was there a little bit of that kind of interwoven through the narrative? Well, I think, you know, the the morality play of wrestling, which I think has its great appeal, because you find shades of good and bad. And you find the um, the people you root for and the ones who are stabbed in the back, right? And the tag team where suddenly someone turns on them. And I think the, the wonder and the great appeal that I always thought wrestling enjoyed over the world was that sort of thing. And as a novelist, I like to show the gray areas. I like to surprise people. I like to show the power struggle, um, the ordinary people caught up in extraordinary times. Um, and almost anyone could become a hero. Almost anyone could be a champion. So that's kind of what I go for. Um, It's not the people in power who are going to determine this. It's the people who are going to rise up and say enough is enough. Enough to the hatred. Enough to the suspicion. uh, Enough to the immorality. And it's um, at the center of this is the question, can the world be saved with faith? And baseball, and baseball continues to, which is one of the great dramas, right? <laughs> you know, uh, one of the great drama sports, you know, played out effortlessly, it seems sometimes, and quietly, and it requires, you know, concentration. But baseball might very well unite um, these two warring factions. Myself included, might have had a slight meltdown when they read that Freckley did not survive the first book, Freckley, a favorite character for some of us, obviously he's not around for the second book, at least as far as I can tell. I'm like a third of the way through it. But I know you have to sometimes kill off your characters as a writer to continue the story. But did you get a lot of backlash from Freckley fans? Yes, there were some people who were upset. And I think as a writer, you have to be willing to take those risks. You have to be willing to kill off popular characters uh, because that's reality. Uh, good people die, and you just have to deal with it. And they leave uh, – I mean, Freckley's death left a hole with Puppy. It left a hole with his mother, Beth, who really never quite recovers, as few parents ever do when, with the loss of a child. So, um, But there are other – some interesting characters – uh, some new characters. I don't know if you're quite up there yet. I don't want to spoil it for you, but there's um, Hedda Kleins, which is a young teacher who makes an entrance, and she plays a prominent role. So 
There's Colonel Basta, who's head of the Shurta, which is the um, Islamic secret police. These are some of the new people on top of the gang from uh, book one, Puppy and Zelda and Annette. And Annette um, follows Puppy because, you know, they're, they're divorced, but they really love each other. I'm sure we've all had that situation and know people who just can't seem to get along, right? But they, deep down, they love each other and they, they find their way back. So there's a lot of the, the human and the personal um, drama, but it's a lot of action. As you know from you know, as you you know from having read it, you see um, uh, one reviewer said it's the Empire Strikes Back of the series. So um, yeah, I, I, I pedal to the metal um, in, in this book. Obviously, baseball is a central theme in the series, uh, especially in the first one. You had that as sort of the background for everything that happened. Baseball has been something that has loose ties to professional wrestling. Uh, We've had people like Randy Savage that played professional baseball. A lot of major wrestling shows have taken place in baseball stadiums like Shea Stadium, uh, like uh, Yankee Stadium, places like that, uh, Riverfront Stadium. If you had to pare down through the annals of wrestling history some wrestlers that you think would make the ultimate baseball team, what's your starting lineup for the Wrestling All-Stars baseball team? Well, um, I have to say I throw Bob Backlund in there. I throw um, Chris Jericho in there, Alfie Kingston, Cody Rhodes. Um, Cody Rhodes would be a good designated hitter, wouldn't he? You know, yeah. Think about, you know, baseball has a whole – I mean, part of the theme – one of the, the, the themes in the novel is that baseball represents the old America, and, that's, and that old America failed, so baseball is discredited because of that. Well – what I love about I love many things about wrestling is um, we're going to get into soon. I was one of the founding editors of Pro Wrestling Illustrated, um, so yes, I'm a wrestling you know former wrestling writer and wrestling fan. Wrestling is populism. Wrestling goes right down into in, the people, and I think and I believe in an America of the people, um, and that sort of entertainment which touches them directly with, without the filters of um, elitist groups like, you know, you could talk, say that of Hollywood, for example. And so that's what I love about wrestling. And that's what I love about baseball. Um, baseball's easily played. Uh, there's a sentimentality to it. There's a sense of history to it as there is with wrestling. Uh, you know, the, the stars of today are compared to the stars of yesterday. There's a, a, a generational shift um but you see the consistency consistency in the sport and how it's evolved over 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 time and some things don't change very very true one of the central themes especially in the first book was the evolution of baseball uh when we were picking up baseball Early in Mound Over Hell, robots were running the 
run the bases. Uh, it was a totally different looking sport than what we would recognize today. Here in 2021, fans of decades ago may not recognize baseball as the same game with all the rule changes. They're trying to speed up the game. Uh, you start extra innings with a runner on second. Uh, there's a lot more safety-influenced rules in place to protect the player's health. Do you think that your vision of what baseball could be is something that once we get to that time period in the 2090s, could be more reality than science fiction? Yes, I, I think my novel is a science fiction baseball dystopia. So it's rare to combine um, science fiction and baseball because most science fiction writers don't think baseball will make the cut. As when, when you think of futuristic sports, there's things like, say, rollerball, right, or some variation of football, um, something extremely violent. They don't think this, the, the quietest sport of baseball will make it. And look, at in our time, baseball is losing popularity, and there's no way around it. Uh, its fan base is, is getting older. And I, I'm, a, I'm a baseball purist, but I understand things change, and you have to move on, and you have to um, ac- accept uh, different conditions and different rules. But it's not so much what's wrong with baseball. It's that baseball is changing because society has changed. And you, people don't have the patience to sit there and watch a baseball game. Uh, you, what, what is it? Surveys say that most people answer that text within like eight seconds. I mean, Jason, that's scary. <laughs> I mean, that's just scary. Okay, and I'm one of the, you know, I'm not saying I'm not one of those offenders too, but baseball requires sitting there and saying, oh, they're doing the shift now. Oh, the center field has moved over to right center field. Ah, the pitcher's pitching the batter away, but he's going to come up up and in on him and it's there's there's a lot of um intricacy which you can you can't get in football i know football is complicated or at least they want football to seem especially complicated but who can really figure it out watching it on television and basketball is so fast that sometimes you really need the instant replay to see just what happened but baseball baseball gives you time to savor but we're in a society which doesn't is impatient and a society which um, has lost its sentimentality. Baseball's a sentimental game. Baseball harkens back to, you know, the, the beginning of, you know, around the, the turn of the 20th century, a different America, and it's grown. And I think now, I agree with you, the rule changes. Really, you need to put a runner on second base because you, you're getting $5 million, $10 million a year, and you can't get the leadoff double. Seriously? I mean, come on. Really? You can't play two nine-inning um, double-headers back-to-back? Really? So there's a, even, you know, old-time baseball fans are going, oh, come on. Uh, so the question is, and but there are some things. Baseball is the games are too long. It, it, as simple as that. People can't stay up that late. You can't take young children to the game that late. Uh, so I think that baseball has to um, find its, its feet and – to grow into the next century, uh, grow um, into the future. And it wouldn't surprise me if baseball continues losing favor. I hope not, but I don't think it's on the right path. Fair enough. I touched on it a few minutes ago, but 
you were there in the beginnings of Pro Wrestling Illustrated, which remains to this day the standard when it comes to professional wrestling magazines. It's outlasted essentially every other wrestling magazine. It's still going strong. Can you tell us what it was like back in 1979 when you were part of the team launching PWI? Well, it was exciting. Uh, you know, I was there with um, the legendary Bill After and um, Stu Sachs and Michael Cape and Randy Gordon and Steve Farhood and Peter King. We were all, you know, back in the day. And uh, we worked for GC London Publishing, which also um, Stanley Weston was the publisher. And also the boxing magazines like Ring Magazine, which you want to talk about iconic sports magazines. But we had The Wrestler and we had Inside Wrestling and the the desire was to do something a little up in terms of look, to really freshen it up. And we wanted to try something a little different. I mean, it was September 1979, and he had Dusty Rhodes and Mil Mascaris on the cover. And I was the primary writer uh, for, for like three, four years of um, Pro Wrestling Illustrated and all the wrestling magazines. Yeah, I wrote those, you know, the Mil Mascaris, uh, Dusty Rhodes cover story and uh, inside, there was a, a letter to Ricky Steamboat, and uh, there was a, a profile of Holly Race, and uh, it was very exciting. Look, whenever you launch a new magazine, you you always have to wonder and worry, is it going to catch on? Are we going to cannibalize ourselves, our, our existing titles? But it, it did not. It took off. At a certain point in the 80s, uh, PWI was outselling Sports Illustrated on newsstands. And, and let's remember what 1979 was like for wrestling fans, okay? There was no cable television. Hello? <laughs> That's it. Um, there was, so you could not watch um, uh, matches from Atlanta, Florida, you know, wherever, or New York if you were in Texas or in, in Seattle uh, and on and on. And there was no internet. I know it's hard to believe that we actually all got along without the internet, but <laughs> but we did. So you really didn't know what was going on in the rest of professional wrestling. And you de- you really, really depended on magazines um, like PWI and The Wrestler. And we were the ones who brought you the news. Uh, we were, and so we played, we took it very seriously. We had a lot of fun in the office. We fooled around. We were all guys, you know, in our 20s, having a ball because we loved what we were doing. It was great, great fun. Um, but we had a responsibility. Now, Bill After is someone that eventually became synonymous with the magazine. He was sort of the person from PWI that would appear on TV the most. He would show up on AWA television or uh, Georgia Championship Wrestling to hand out awards. Uh, He had uh, screen time when they produced videotapes in the mid-'80s, and a lot of people just associated him with PWI and vice versa because of the uh, notoriety that he was getting at that point. Did you ever get the sense that uh, Bill After was sort of the man that fans associated the magazine with, or was it still largely a team effort as far as all the writers were concerned at that point? Oh, I think it was both. 
I think we needed a team to get the magazines out and write the stories, but Bill was the face of the magazine, and who better? I mean, Bill Lapp's knowledge of wrestling is unsurpassed. No one has the, the knowledge of the knowledge of the people, the contacts, and really everyone loves Bill Lapp. You just, it's impossible not to love him. He's just a wonderful, warm human being. And um, so I think we were very fortunate to have Bill as the conduit to the wrestlers and the promoters and going on television, um, traveling, not only around the country, but around the world, to, to Japan, to Europe. Uh, he was the one uh, inter- interacting with photographers to make sure we got photographs of matches in Tokyo, for example. You know, and again, all over the world, Germany. Uh, Great Britain, um, I don't think it could have um, succeeded as it did without Bill. It deservedly should be called the aftermag. That is definitely the name a lot of people use to describe the family of magazines. Sorry? Uh, in, that was- uh, in recent times, uh, PWI, of course, is still going strong. They uh, always produce the PWI 500, which is very fondly anticipated by not only the fans of wrestling, but also the people within the industry to see if they made the prestigious list. But one of the things that PWI has had to do over the last few years to kind of stay current and get their name out there to fans is the use of Twitter, and it seems Twitter is something that not only PWI has done, but pro wrestlers and professional wrestling promotions have had to take to Twitter just to be current and to be able to have a voice in the marketplace. I'm sure being a writer and uh, producing books, Twitter is also important for promoting for you as well. What do you think of Twitter as a promotional tool, not only in your line of work, but also in your previous line of work for pro wrestling? Oh, I think it's really important. IPWI has, you know, is the, is the, the venerable magazine, but it's really the only one. Or, I mean, there might be a, a few others, but it's not like, you know, the heyday when there were many different titles out there. So you have to communicate with the fans and Twitter is really great. Uh, as long as you don't run afoul of on social media, you always have to be careful what you say. Which you know, <laughs> when in the world of professional wrestling, you're not always careful what you say. That's kind of the point. But you you know you have to be respectful of people, and I think it's a wonderful tool. Absolutely. I use it all the time to promote my books. I have a new um, uh, scripted TV series, Joyland which um, just premiered on YouTube, which we're, promote, we're, we're producing via Zoom, and it's set in the 1960s, actually. And, uh, in fact, um, a vet, you know, because I'm the, one of the creators, uh, there's going to be a, a, a wrestling storyline. It's set in New York City and um, up in the Catskills Resort. So there's going to be one of the characters who's going to try to raise money by setting up a wrestling show. So I'm going to, you know, hopefully... Get someone known to play the wrestler. That would be definitely something to look forward to. Uh, obviously, uh, you have a very, very long 
history in writing in recent times in pro wrestling the role of the booker has sort of transitioned at least for a lot of the larger corporate promotions into uh, writers that will kind of make the wrestling show a television show with wrestling in it more than a wrestling show uh, that is aired on TV. Did you ever get approached by any of the companies to help with the writing of the wrestling shows? No. No, I was strictly uh, working in the magazines. You know, we would coordinate, of course, uh, to follow whatever storylines they were um, pursuing and unveiling on, on, you know, as we used to call it, the squared circle. But, um, no, I never did that. I liked to just be there with the, you know, with the magazines, writing the stories, uh, having a lot of fun, talking to wrestlers, and just, you know, it was one, this was, you know, before um, Vince Jr. took over. So the wrestling had more of a veil of secrecy. You didn't talk about things. Uh, the cafe, you know, you just, it was, we all know what that was like. Now it's a little more open, but it was, um, I'll never forget, Mil Mascaris came to lunch one day, and he insisted on staying in character. We went to a restaurant near the office, and he was wearing his mask. Now, you know, I'm not saying he didn't get a few strange looks, <laughs> but um, sitting there, in his, you know, sitting in the, in the booth with his mask on, but that was what you did. You stayed in character. And I have to tell you, I've been, you know, I've done other sports, you know, I've worked with other athletes, and I was in television um, and publicity for many years. And working with wrestlers are a joy. I, when I was at Sci-Fi Channel, I did the publicity for our presentation in SmackDown. And the wrestlers on the Divas and the Divas, everyone, you know, again, this is what I mean by the elitist look at wrestling. Oh, the wrestlers, they're going to be, you know, they're going to act stupid and they're going to be impossible. And, and our executives were always shocked at how, respectful were and the divas were and um and i was always kind of proud of that um because you know these were my peeps obviously you are a big baseball fan and you talk to a lot of the wrestlers over the years a lot of them are big baseball fans who would you say was the biggest baseball fan of all the wrestlers that you would talk to back then? Um, I seem to recall um, Bob Backlund liked baseball. That's That sticks in my head. Oh, is he a Twins fan being from Minnesota? Yes, I believe so, yes. was I think he was, yes, Midwest. Could be the Cardinals by the way, didn't, I think, did he run for public office in Missouri, I believe? That sticks in my head. I'd have to look that up. But he was always a class act, Bob Backlund. Of course, I mean, right now I'm wearing a Living Legend t-shirt just for you. Bruno San Martino was always my favorite because he was, you want to talk about class acts. Uh, he was, he just shone out. He was just the epitome of a good guy. I, I remember it was a PWI issue um, 1980 where he went berserk on Larry Zabisco. I mean, any, you know, that was pretty shocking 
to see Bruno react like that, but he was um, a, a wonderful person. Well, at this point in time, my co-host QT is standing by, and I know that he has questions too, so I'm going to pass things over to him. Hi, QT. How you doing, man? Well, I'm doing uh, very good. Uh, thanks, Gary, uh, and thanks, Sign Guy. Um, Gary, uh, here's a question. At any time during the writing of the book Mound Over Hell, did Marge Schott enter into your thoughts? Marge Schott, the Cincinnati Reds owner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. No. I mean, I know she was kind of a villain, but <laughs> um, but there was some, you know, owners, you know, the, well, I, could, I guess, you know, the two owners of, of the of the, the Bronx teams in a mound over hell, they were not quite high end, and they had kind of they were a little shady. So maybe a little a little bit of Marge Shot, yes. Okay, now if Marge Shot had ever appeared in the wrestling ring, do you think that she would uh, do her level best to be a babyface? Probably, she'd do her level best to get her way and do it kind of in an underhanded fashion. Okay. All right. If she could time travel and appear in a wrestling ring in a much younger body, in a a lady's wrestling body, who do you think she would tag team well with? Fabulous Moolah. Oh, okay. Fabulous Moolah for a lady. That'd be a very good choice. Okay. How about a man? Who would who, what man would she team well with if she if she could time travel? Hmm. Oh, maybe Pedro Morales. Okay, very good choice. I was going with George the Animal Steel. Ah. <laughs> that's an even better choice. Yes, QT. That's perfect. Oh, he was great. I mean, really, right, what a character, was. right? God, God bless him. Yes, I, I, you know, who can ever forget, and this is steeped in American culture, is uh, tearing apart a turnbuckle with his teeth. Yeah. <laughs> you got, I mean, really, the things, things they did back in the day, right? And, and everyone loved it. Yes. Now, you see, I believe if Marge had teamed with George the Animal Steel, George could have softened up the turnbuckle and Marge could have finished it. That's my take. <laughs> she had pretty savage teeth, yes. She was yes. She was a piece of work, wasn't she? Well, she was uh, controversial, that's for yeah. sure. She would have yeah. been instantly, instantly blackballed today in this uh, can- oh. cancel cult. Yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, no. She never would have made it this far. Nope. And thank right. goodness for that. You know, I have my issues with cancel culture, but on the other hand, people, you know, who, who are bigoted, they should get canceled. Okay. All right. Very good. Okay. Well, uh, Gary, in a seminal uh, uh, episode of Seinfeld, and I hope you're a big Seinfeld uh, yeah. connoisseur, George does not want to read a book, and I believe the book is called Breakfast at Tiffany's for his book, book club. So he rents the movie, and he ends up watching it with a man and his family he barely knows. My question is, do you see anyone in the future who may not want to read your book, Mound Over Hell, but she might rent, rent a CD or a movie that might come out uh, as, so, uh, as to report on a mound over 
hell in their book club instead of reading. I, I would like that to happen. I would be very oh. happy about that. I wish there would someday be someone like um, Audrey Hepburn in the role, you know, as, as one of the actresses. Oh, okay. All right. Now, my second question is, did you indeed see this episode uh, where George does not want to read Breakfast yes. at Tiffany's? Now oh, you've brought okay. my memory, yes. There were so many episodes, wonderful Seinfeld episodes <laughs> dancing around in my head, but yes. Now, was one of your favorite moments is when he knocks on the door and the guy says, who is it? And he goes, George Costanza, I met you uh, at so-and-so. And he kind of reluctantly lets him in, and George proceeds to sit on his couch, and he goes, do you have something to gnaw on, like popcorn or something? Did you like that part? <laughs> yeah. Well, they were just, you know, they were so self-centered. You know, I mean, you like, you like them in spite of themselves. Uh, yes. You know, they really yeah, – yeah, they just didn't care a great deal about other people. Well, uh, you know, on a rare moment when uh, they uh, did, uh, sometimes they did acknowledge their flaws and they apologized. Yes, yes, yes. that was very good. Brought them back down to earth. The one character I liked that wasn't a main character, but he is indelibly in etched in Seinfeld lore is David Putty, Elaine's boyfriend, Putty. Oh, yes. Oh, he's a wonderful actor. Yes. Can you imagine dating um elaine talk about high maintenance oh my god <laughs> that's right? true oh she threw the ring uh, yeah what do you think david putty would have been a good baseball player or a character in hindsight in mound over hell david putty yes yes because he's, he's kind of colorful and quirky and i like <laughs> colorful and quirky characters I like people who are going to make you're going to you're going to surprise the um, the reader. You know, you want complicated characters who are certainly flawed, but have you know are good people ultimately. But sometimes good people do the wrong thing. Well, I think David Putty would have been good in Mound Over Hell because he supports his team enough to paint his face like the New Jersey yes. Devils. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. Indeed. Okay. Okay. Well, Gary, when you were writing the book Mound Over Hell, at any time, did you stay up on coffee or speed like Jack Kerouac did when he banged out On the Road, a seminal beat book in the late 50s? Did you stay up on any, like, two and alls, two and alls? No. <laughs> no. Oh, okay. no, 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 I, I need a good night's sleep. Now, you know, when you're a writer, you, you know, you, you, you never kind of really turn it off. You're always thinking about what you're writing. You're thinking about scenes that work, don't work, characters talking to you in your head. But I, didn't Kerouac use toilet or rolls of toilet paper to write on? No, I, I never did that. I'm not sure if it was toilet paper, but it was a, a continuous loop of paper that he fed yes. through a typewriter. Yes. yes. No, I did kind of and like I, more normal, more normal stuff. And I believe that, um, if I'm not mistaken, that uh, uh, roll of 
continuous paper, be it toilet paper or something. I have, yeah, I think it's in the Smithsonian Institution, I believe. Hmm. I would be surprised. Yeah. That's a wonderful novel. It is. It is a, uh, uh, a brilliant novel. Yes. All about these guys and who overtook this uh, long journeys by car. Yes. 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 The restlessness, the Dean Moriarty, all of them. Yep. Brilliant. And then they made a movie some years ago, which was not very good. It just didn't capture it. Which, which episode is this? No, a mo- there was a movie movie of On the Road. Oh, yes. And they did not, it was not very well done. I don't even remember who was in it, but I tried watching it. It was like, oh, geez, what are you guys doing? Because I know uh, that the famous comedian Bill Murray made a movie called Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Yes, Hunter Thompson, yes. And Bill Murray himself, is was he was part owner of a minor league baseball club. Do you happen to know the name of that baseball club that Bill Murray uh, partly owned? No. No, wasn't um, – oh, uh, Kurt Russell wasn't – Kurt Russell, the actor, was a baseball player. And I thought he owned also a, a bit in um, a minor league team as a franchise as well. You know, that's it. The minor league is slowly fading away, you know. And starting yeah. with COVID last year, they, like, lost a, a, a 25% of the minor league um, uh, franchises. That's true. That's true. That that uh, it seems to be a, a casualty, and I think today's uh, kids would rather. Some of them are uh, starting to just watch it on the on the screen, or join the the kids today are wrapped up in fantasy baseball. Fantasy yeah, baseball, which is not the same. Yeah, because it's you're not doing it for the game. You're doing it for some other reason, or just maybe to make money. Yeah, baseball. You know, I was, as I was. Saying to Jason, baseball has it got issues. Yeah, that's true. Okay. Well, I will. I myself will get, uh, take it upon myself, uh, my homework assignment, to look up uh, what team Bill Murray was involved in and report back to you or sign guy. Please do. I would love that. Please oh, okay. let me know. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. Well, Gary, on February twelfth, nineteen ninety-two. On an episode on Seinfeld, it is called The Boyfriend, Jerry becomes jealous when Keith Hernandez begins to date Elaine. With wow. Keith Hernandez's role in this episode in the back of your mind when you wrote the book? No. No. <laughs> no, because it's, it's, it's the Yankees. It's not the Mets. Uh, yes. Yes, Keith Hernandez played for the Mets, yes. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. you know, he d- uh, did try to date Elaine, and at one point, ha- I believe, had her in the car and wanted a kiss. And the yeah. prospect of uh, – e- Elaine said something like, well, I know you're not getting to second base tonight. <laughs> <laughs> Funny. Okay. Episode. All right, so Keith Hernandez was not uh, really in your mind. Okay, uh, that's, yeah. fi- that's fine. Okay, well – uh, as you know, Gary, uh, Jerry Seinfeld is a huge fan of the Mets. At yeah. any time, did his representatives contact you and say that they, uh, they, if you wanted any advice, Jerry would give it to you? 
Were you contacted? No, I didn't. I, no, no one. No, when you write a novel, no one knows what you're doing. I like to keep oh. it until it's done. But you know the. Okay. But um, um, City Field, or it will be called Shea Stadium, and a fastball for freedom does come back. Okay. So all you Mets fans out there, don't despair. If you read a fastball for freedom, your team will be back. Men, in fact, in a fastball for freedom, all 30 of the um, French, uh, the franchises and on all the ballparks are rebuilt. They're rebuilt by robots, actually. Okay. Kind of like a artificial intelligence help. Yes. 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 So the, in time for the 2099 baseball season. All right. Okay. Now, uh, Gary, you told us that sometimes, uh, well, pretty much all the time, that the, when you're working on the novel, it come, it's in the back of your head even when you go to sleep. What was your worst case of writer's block, and how did you? And what did you do to overcome uh, your worst case of cases of writer's block? Actually, that's, that's a great question because I I wrote the first draft of A Mound Overheld by Longhead because I wanted that tactile feeling of no um, computer between me and my words. I wanted to hold a pen and just write um, in a notebook, actually nine notebooks, um, like I did when I first started writing. So, yes, that, that broke the logjam for me. Okay. All right. Well, Gary, my wrestling sources in Shelton, Washington – have told me something that I find it kind of hard to uh, imagine, but they say that at one time, based on your no, your novel about to come out, A Fastball for Freedom, that you were once considering a book called A Slow Pitch for Socialism. Can you can you cut that? Uh, can you deny that right now? I, I mean, I my wrestling sources. Categorically deny it. Oh, all right. I'm going to get after my wrestling sources in Shelton, please. Washington. Told me that. Yes. No, Someone named uh, Lance or something. Okay. <laughs> all right. Well, now, Gary, I uh, one of my favorite parts of the book is uh, page 79, and it involves Puppy and Zelda, and uh, it uh, on the last part of this uh, uh, few. Uh, the few sentences in uh, page 79, it goes, By Kaylee followed Diego to the bar, holding both his hands so they swayed beneath, behind his back. Puppy grinned. Zelda flushed. He's a sailor. It's work. Puppy hummed anchors away. Zelda tw- twisted his pinky until he yelled. I like that part because I myself served time in the Coast Guard, and Anchors hmm. Away was a, was a song I was very familiar with. Yes, yeah, see? It's, it's, isn't it nice when you're a writer, the different ways you touch your readers? Yes, you know, you never know. It's beautiful, oh, right? Yeah. That's the magic. Yes. Okay. At, at any time, did you go to members of the military or, or separate branches for inspiration or stories? No, I did not. Okay. I have so much up All in right. my head. You know, I'm always careful if, if I need to research something. I do. Um, I'm, I'm very, very, very attentive to the details. But then again, as a novelist, you have to make things up. 
That's what you want people. That's why people read your books. Oh, okay. I, I just asked this question because sometimes, like during war, there have been very famous baseball players that, that served in the war and came back and, and uh, they had their stats, their, their uh, career stats, kind of cut short because of the war, because of yes. the time they served. Or yes. they overcame injuries to b- play baseball again. Yes. Well, World War II, uh, Ted Williams and Joe DiMaggio and Hank Greenberg and Bob Feller, I mean, you know, the, the prime years. Yes. Yes. Uh, think of... Think of what stats Bob Feller would have had had he not served. That's a lot of games. Yes. Ted Williams, how many? He would have hit 600 homers. Yes, I think. Didn't he serve two and a half years? Yes. Missed two and a half years. I think, didn't he um, sign up again for career, I believe? Ooh, you might be right. Here again is another turnbuckle homework assignment that I will undergo. Okay. And I'll report back to, uh, to Sign Guide to tell you. Yes. yes, please do. Very good. Oh, okay. Well, Gary, I enjoyed uh, your book, Mound Over Hell. And uh, I look forward uh, when Sign Guide gets with Fastball for Freedom, perhaps he can loan me that. And uh, I will, uh, you know, certainly make a read out of that. And in the meantime, uh, I hope you uh, don't run into any soup Nazis like there was on no. Seinfeld. <laughs> I'm going to keep clear of them. <laughs> yeah. All right. I, I'd like to. I would have liked to ask you a couple more questions, but sure. I have a Friday gig uh, that I have to go do my soup job, so I'm going to turn it back over to Sign Guy. Oh. Terrific. Thank you so much, QT. Back to back to you, Sign Guy. Thank you, QT. Gary, as a fan of baseball and as someone that worked kind of in the wrestling industry to some degree, obviously there are similarities between the two uh, sports, uh, the two business entities of baseball and wrestling. What, in your opinion, as someone that has followed both, would be the similarities between the two? I think that it appeals to the little guy, the um, the average person. I think it's accessible. I think the drama of the game, of the sport, um, the intensity, um, I think it's sentimental, and I think it's very – both sports are very poignant. Some people may not take into consideration. Well, I think baseball – is linked to the past with a lot of statistics. So numbers have like a, a resonance um, where you wouldn't have that as much in wrestling. So, you know, if someone says 56, you know, it's Joe DiMaggio's 56-game hitting streak. So something like that, uh, which, you know, is different. And I think uh, the beauty of statistics is it just brings you back through generations. But then, you know, wrestling has the generations. I mean, look, we have, you know, Cody Rhodes, you know, his, his father, the great Dusty Rhodes, who I was a huge fan of. Dusty Rhodes is a, was a great guy, rest his soul. And, you know, you have that as well. I mean, you have um, ballplayers who 
those of us saw um, their fathers play. And it's the same sort of thing. And it's, you know, maybe it makes you feel a little old, but, <laughs> but it's also nice to see the torch being passed. The late Dusty Rhodes actually took his wrestling name from a famous baseball player of the 1950s named Dusty Rhodes. Yes, San Francisco with the, from the New York Giants. Correct, yes. Uh, apparently, according to a magazine article I read at one point, they were actually fans of each other. Oh, how interesting. I thought it was. I, I'm not sure if Dusty Rhodes, the wrestler, thought that Dusty Rhodes, the baseball player, would know who he was, but apparently he not only knew, he was a fan of him, and it was kind of a nice little uh, coming of age type of thing there, where Dusty Rhodes yeah. kind of knew he made it when one of his heroes knew who he was. Yeah, lovely, right? Exactly. Now, in A Mountain Over Hell, there was one character in the book, uh, Moshi Lopez, who was very, very prominent, and she had sort of a wild personality. She was kind of a uh, loose cannon type of character, and she had played professional baseball, and she was one of the most famous musicians of the time. She also had a lot of characteristics that would apply to the world of professional wrestling. Was she based on an actual person or based on a group of actual people that you blended? No, she really, there's no one in the books who I would say were inspired by any real people, but certainly Mushi um, conveyed that um, larger than life wrestling persona. I mean, you could see, I mean, Mushi could have gone into a wrestling ring. You could see her with the cape easily, you know, taking someone down. Yes, she was, um, she was a, a loose cannon. She was, you know, political activist, which got her in a great deal of trouble, ended up costing her her life. Um, and one of the greatest uh, ball players of all time. She added a lot of records. And I like the fact that she was a woman. I will accept your answer, but I will also add the caveat. Mickey Mantle and uh, Ty Cobb played prominent roles, and they were real people. Yes. Yes, I meant um, a fictional character based on a real person. But, yes, I used Mickey Mantle and Ty Cobb because I wanted, um, I wanted ball players to come back from the 20th century who would be jolted by what America was like. And um, so that kind of worked out well. You know, the, the society's norms and uh, behavior had changed. Uh, many of the main characters in a in, in amount over hell are diverse. So Ty Cobb would have, you know, went, uh oh, <laughs> because he was not the most enlightened person. Um, so I, I thought it was kind of like, you know, two fish out of water, and especially when they see what the heck happened to baseball, where they, you know, Mickey goes and sees Amazon Stadium, which was once Yankee Stadium, and it's a mess. It's falling apart. It just breaks his heart, and you know they don't especially Ty Cobb managing the Yankees, 
uh, at having to deal with players who are not up to his standards. But he berates them pretty good. It didn't take a lot for Ty Cobb to lose his temper. For the events happen in a mound over hell, there was a player in Major League history named Rube Waddell, and he was very, very well known to be uh, something of a different type of character. He would chase after fire trucks if one went by the stadium. He would go out in the stands and play with puppy dogs if there were any at the park. He would order his teammates to uh, go off of the diamond so he could be the only defensive player. Uh, lots of crazy things out there. There's been a lot of uh, crazy pro wrestlers over the years. A lot of guys have done a lot of different things. Would you say that as a baseball fan and historian that Rube Waddell might have been the most likely to have been a professional wrestler if he had lived in the right era? Oh, yeah. He could have been another George the Animal Steel. Don't you think? Uh, With a fabulous Samoans. I think so. I think he might have been the first ever uh, space man, Frank Hickey. (laughs) It's been great talking to you, Jason. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, We are down to our final few minutes of showtime, and I want to make sure you have plenty of chance to plug and promote anything. So uh, anything you want to promote, the uh, places to buy the books, social media, any upcoming projects, anything you want to say to the listeners as we close out, the floor is yours. Okay, well, um, to buy my novels, Mound Over Hell, and the Fastball for Freedom, you could go to Amazon, Barnes & Noble, um, Apple Books, Google Books, or just walk into your bookstore and they'll order it. Uh, and also my new TV series, Joyland, set in the 1960s, just premiered on YouTube. And the channel is Joyland, a new series. And episode one is up there. And episode two will be out on April 26th. And we have um, some time during... The, the first season, we're going to have a, a wrestling storyline, which I'm very excited about. Um, and it's produced entirely on Zoom, which is kind of cool. It's kind of very innovative. We're trying to change the way you develop TV series. And uh, as I just want to tell all you wrestling fans that you are wonderful. I just always, I mean, going back to the days of uh, PWI, I was always touched and moved and just, it just made me smile the love of wrestling fans for their sport. So please keep it going. Most definitely. Well, I want to thank you so much for taking the time today to be with us once again. I am definitely enjoying the follow-up book. I enjoyed the first one, Amount Over Hell, immensely, with the exception of what happened to poor Freckley. But, um, <laughs> I'm looking forward to digging back into the follow-up of Fastball for Freedom, and I'm definitely going to check out that series you were talking about. I will scout out Episode 1 later today, and I want to wish you the very best of luck as we continue the series and get the third in the trilogy. 
later on. I'm sure that's going to be phenomenal as well. The first two have been great. Thank you, Jason. You take care. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Stay safe. All right, fans. Definitely go out there, support your local independent wrestling as more and more shows are popping up as things get a little more less restricted. Everybody continue to be safe out there. We will be back with you next Friday afternoon. We have Chris Whaley, who is the author of The Masked Saint, and he also was the uh, inspiration behind the movie The Masked Saint, which was Rowdy Roddy Piper's final film. So he will be with us. It should be an absolutely fascinating time next Friday. And this coming Sunday on the show, we have Sam Knight, a great independent wrestler. So make sure you have plans to be with us, and we will talk to you soon.